Everyone has a story. How they got here, where they met along the way, the choices they made, the dreams they are chasing. Welcome to Anthologies of Hope. Welcome back to Anthologies of Hope this week in our first Conversations Cafe this season recorded live from Sip of Hope Coffee Bar. As always, I'm your host, Rigasowski, and I am not a mental health professional in any way, simply a mental health advocate with a passion for storytelling. If you've been listening the past few weeks, we've been previewing some additional content we have coming your way this season, as well as a few big announcements and surprises. Our biggest announcement, which we had planned to let you all in on this week, is going to have to wait just a little bit longer. It was a hectic one here on the home front, and we weren't quite able to dot all our I's and cross all our T's. However, one little surprise we can let you all in on is to be on the lookout for a special Monday edition of Anthologies of Hope for November 11th, Veterans Day, here in the U.S. In partnership with Hope for the Day, we'll be bringing you some in-depth conversations with veterans of the American Armed Forces to discuss the mental health impacts of joining the military, serving both at home and abroad, as well as what it is like once you return home. On the previously announced project side of the house, look for the Anthologies of Hope blog to launch next Friday. That's one week from the day this episode drops. We are going to bring you excellent writing from past guests and friends of the show. It will be kicking off for the blog series titled Eureka, based on inspiration from one of my favorite Comic-Con artists, Monkey Minion Press, and their excellent art book titled Eureka, The Art of Science. Check them out on Instagram at Monkey Minion Press and their website at monkeyminionpress.com to get a head start. Later in the month, keep an ear out for our new Mental Health Minute episodes as well. These shorter episodes will cover practical, research-proven tips on how you can approach your mental health care delivered in a conversational and actionable approach. Starting with two separate episodes to focus on skills and techniques for anxiety and depression respectively, these Mental Health Minute episodes will be accompanied with blog posts of their own so you can take away concrete courses of action whenever you may need them. So now we get to today's Conversations Cafe. As I mentioned, the first Conversations Cafe episode of Season 3 that was recorded live at Sip of Hope Coffee Bar in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood. The first three Conversations Cafe episodes of the season were recorded live from Hope for the Day's Conversations Summit 2019, held during the first Saturday in September at the UIC Forum in downtown Chicago. But this week, we are back to basics, featuring education and open forum dialogue on the intersections of mental health within our communities on a variety of rotating topics. Our episode this week is titled First Responders and features interviews with some of Chicago's first responders and the intersection of mental health and the important work they do daily to help others. For clarity, a first responder is a person with specialized training who is among the first to arrive and provide assistance at the scene of an emergency and includes paramedics, emergency medical technicians, police officers, and firefighters. In honor of National First Responders Day, this past Monday, October 28th, we highlighted stories and perspectives of representatives from the Chicago Police Department, Chicago Fire Department, and Chicago Emergency Medical Services. Our guests this week, in order of appearance, include Steve Schneider, a former EMT and paramedic in Champaign, Illinois, as well as a close and personal friend, Al Medina, former member of the Chicago Fire Department and current member of the Quinn Fire Academy, Elizabeth Crow, a licensed clinician from the First Responders EAP program here in Chicago, and closing it out, we have members of the Chicago Police Department, Officer Kate Sanchez of the 19th District, and Officer Teresa Kelly of the 18th District, both mental health liaison officers. This is one week where we ran extra long, but no one wanted to leave or go anywhere. I hope all of our listeners get as much out of this week's conversations as everyone in the room did at Sip of Hope. Of course, as it is a new season, we'll be starting a new Spotify playlist to join with all of our long-form interviews. You can go check it out right now in anthologiesofhope.com playlist, and it has all the songs associated with the first half of season three. 
You can still find season one at anthologiesofhope.com slash season dash one dash playlist and season two at anthologiesofhope.com slash season dash two dash playlist. Every week, we'd like to remind you that if you're in a time of crisis, we'll be covering a range of potentially difficult topics. Please use this as a warning to seek help and come back to listen once you're in a more positive season. If you are in need of help, an abundance of international resources can be found on the Find Help pages from Trite Love in Our Arms and Hope for the Day. Trite Love in Our Arms can be found at twloha.com slash find dash help. And Hope for the Day can be found at hftd.org slash find dash help. As always, you can find us at anthologiesofhope.com, on Facebook and Instagram as Anthologies of Hope, on Twitter as Anthologies Pod, or email us directly at Anthologies of Hope, all one word, no punctuation, at gmail.com. Like, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you're finding us. So, without any further waiting, since you're in for some great conversation, some great callbacks among all the guests in the episode, and more importantly, some perspective for the next time you see a first responder running towards an emergency event when everyone else is moving away from it. This week's Conversations Cafe for October, first responders. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the next episode of Conversations Cafe, recorded live from Sip of Hope Coffee Bar in Logan Square, the world's first coffee shop where 100% of the net proceeds go to support Hope for the Day's proactive suicide prevention and outreach education. Tonight we have a fantastic episode dedicated to the experiences of first responders, and we're going to be talking to a number of guests from various areas of the most critical field as a part of the overall suicide prevention team and network. Hope of the Day's role in the spectrum of suicide prevention is proactive prevention. Our goal is to create strategies and provide resources to disrupt the highest risk factors for suicide by disrupting escalation. We do that work because the traditional approach to suicide prevention in America and globally has largely been reactive, one in which we're not talking about mental health until it adversely impacts our lives. And that's been the status quo for as far as we look back on suicide prevention. And as a point of fact, the very, very front line of this work ultimately comes down to first responders. When we talk about suicide prevention in the front line and we talk about first responders, that's actually a a complex field of personnel and individuals and organizations doing work that's basically a 24-hour vocation um, because suicide has no prejudice. There's no one specific window. Someone could be at risk of imminent harm at any given point, any given time. There's no holiday. There's no off time for it. And so when you hear the sort of vernacular of first responders, what we mean is everyone who's there to respond right at the point that someone is at risk of imminent harm to their lives. This includes not just the hospitals, but the EMTs, fire, law enforcement, all the individuals who, when the call comes that someone needs help, when someone needs to provide intervention for someone who may be at risk of taking their own lives, these are the first people who are gonna be there. And we wanted to create an episode that explored those experiences beyond just memorizing a lifeline. So before we really get started, we wanted to sort of talk about the civilian side of that. And so our first guest 
tonight is going to be um, a resident friend of the Hope of the Day family, Jackie Carmody. Come on up, Jackie. Hi, Jackie. So Jackie, we're going to be talking to a number of professionals who are out on that front line. And uh, even though you're currently in private practice, you also had an extensive experience at the hospital level. Yes. Um, so why don't you just introduce yourself to the folks real quick? Definitely. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Jacqueline Carmody. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor and a registered art therapist. Um, and like Carl said, I'm currently working in private practice, but when I first got started in the field, I was working um, at an inpatient psychiatric facility, um, which was a hospital setting where many people who came in through the admissions were coming in due to crisis, either due to harm to themselves or others. Um, so I wanted to talk with you a little bit about um, kind of what that process is. If you are a first responder to somebody and you are not a professional, kind of what steps to take. Um, so the first step is if somebody comes to you and they appear to be in crisis and they're verbalizing to you that they are in crisis, either harming themselves or others, or you just get that feeling that something isn't right and you don't feel safe, you know, leaving them on their own. The best thing is to believe that instinct and believe what they're saying. So taking them seriously, don't assume that, you know, they're saying something that they don't mean. The first step is really just to take them seriously and take their actions seriously. Um, the next step is to just keep eyes on them with, if you're with them physically in person, not leaving their side. Um, if it's somebody who you're talking to over the phone or on the internet or, you know, texting, make sure that you get them on the phone, get them on a FaceTime call, get them on Skype and see if there's anybody that they're with, maybe a family member or, you know, a roommate, somebody that you can kind of connect with to make sure that they are physically safe um, until a higher level of care can come. Um, so that would be the third step of kind of getting them with a higher level of care, which would either be calling 911 while you're on the phone with them, calling 911 while you're in person and waiting for them to come, or physically bringing them to that um, facility, whether it's a hospital or somewhere where they can get um, an assessment done. Um, so if you don't remember those three steps, that's okay. The best thing you can do is just remember that if you call the National Lifeline, um, they will walk you through each of those steps, walk you through the crisis, and kind of hold your hand through that process because it can be really intense. Um, you know, if you're in it, you're going to kind of just be tunnel vision and thinking, what do I do? How do I help this person in the best way possible? Um, so that's the best thing you can do. Just remember, okay, there's a phone number um, that I can call and they're going to be able to walk me through that and then they will give you those three steps. Um, but I think when someone is in crisis, their first reaction is to kind of just react and like, you know, make sure everyone is okay or, you know, fix it. And it's like, it's not really about that. If you can, you know, get them to a place that's safe, get them to be safe with themselves and safe with you, then, you know, everything will go smoothly. And getting them to a place like a, a hospital or an in inpatient facility isn't going to be a quick fix where, okay, when they are discharged or when they leave the hospital, they're gonna be in a great mental place and they're gonna be stable. It's really just a place to stabilize their body, keep their body physically safe, get them one-on-one, 24-7 -on -one, care. Um, and then when they are discharged, it's really important that the aftercare plan takes place, whether it's in a PHP, it's a day program, or it's um, 
you know, intensive outpatient care so that they can slowly get themselves to a place where they're able to function um, and be safe with themselves and other people. Um, so I guess just, you know, being a professional, I, I do this, I would say, Daily, I'm kind of assessing for crisis, but not really in crisis daily, but um, I kind of forget that many people don't know what to do <laughs> when this happens. And so to me, it seems common, you know, oh, you go through these different steps, you stay calm, you, you know, connect with them. But as someone who doesn't deal with a crisis, you know, every day, it's really important just to know that there are supports, you don't have to do it alone, and there is a hotline that you can call to make sure that it's done in the safest way and the most effective way, so. Thank you, Jackie. So, I'm still that, yeah. I'm still this magnet. So just as a quick review here, why we bring this up is because civilians, folks who are not dealing with mental health and crisis situations on a day-to-day -day basis can get a real deer in the headlights feeling if it comes. So I just, we wanna re reiterate what Jackie was talking about is that, look, you could hear it directly. Somebody tells you directly or you saw something or maybe your friend or family member hits you up because they know you've talked about mental health before. And they say, hey, so-and-so said this, or I heard X, Y, and Z. And all the roads lead to you thinking or being concerned that someone might try to harm themselves. And you don't know for sure if it's they're gonna try and take their own life or not. But just to double down on what Jackie was saying, first step is take them seriously. There's too much, um, oh, somebody else will handle it. We can see a lot of people saying like, well, maybe they're not really serious. We'll go to bed, we'll check on them in the morning. Take them seriously. Assume no one else is going to take action. You are never ever, ever acting in uh, bad faith or doing something wrong if you believe you're taking action to save someone's life. So you take them seriously and then in step two, when Jackie's talking about staying with them, that can be dynamic. There is not a perfect scenario. So sometimes that means you're physically with that person. Uh, and that means like if they're going to the bathroom, you're leaving the door open. Um, staying with them can also mean, you know, and we hope this never happens, uh, but staying with them can also mean you may have to remove elements or items that could be lethal to them uh, if they happen to have a weapon. Now, you're not MacGyver, uh, you're not John McClane, we're not instructing you to try to disarm someone or anything like that. Um, that may be out of your wherewithal. That's just a reality. But if you can stay with them, you're there not to unravel the deeper mysteries of how they got to a point of crisis or to de-escalate them or even to spend the whole day or night and 14, 20 hours with them until they're calm and then go to a hospital. You are there only until you can connect them with professional medical resources. And ultimately that means if you can safely get them to a hospital, and we don't even want you to be focused on whether it's a behavioral health hospital or get them to any hospital. And, and let's be honest, the world's not perfect. Not every hospital, there may be long waits, there may not be enough beds, but that's a road that we'd rather deal with than having them out in the sort of general public world where there's a lot more risks. Them in a hospital having to wait for a bed is not a pleasurable experience, it can be frustrating, but that's a loads, lot better of an issue to deal with than just leaving them out, well, they're at an apartment or they're at this house and they'll be fine here. Um, and finally, I can't thank you enough for bringing that up, Jackie, that it's important for us to understand stigma is the biggest obstacle to effective suicide prevention because it keeps us from talking. 
it keeps us from understanding and communicating earlier signs and symptoms. But other things that go along with stigma is misunderstanding what the tools and resources are out there. A hospital, when it comes to mental health, is not a fix. A hospital is stabilization. And if somebody goes to a hospital, whether it's a 24-hour stay or a week or multiple weeks or things like that, if you are supporting that individual when they come out, you don't want to take the attitude of, oh, so it's going to be a bed of roses from now on because you went to the hospital and it's all copacetic now. No, what the hospital did, what they're capable of doing in that moment and in that short amount of time is getting the body stable. And they typically, ideally, <laughs> won't discharge you until they believe you are not at an imminent risk. That has nothing to do with still facing challenges from whatever your mental health experience was. That's where outpatient care comes in. Um, we will be doing more episodes, especially on outpatient and aftercare in the hospital, but we just wanted to talk about that very frontline experience. And if you do have a deer in the headlights, if you're listening to this and uh, you're like, oh wait, there were three steps, what am I supposed to do? Jackie brought up something that was just as essential. The National Suicide Lifeline, and like all other systems currently with mental health and suicide prevention, nothing is perfect, but the National Suicide Lifeline is an excellent tool, not just for those in crisis. Yes, it potentially can serve helping de-escalate someone and talk them down and connect with resources. But for you, if you are supporting someone who may be in crisis, the National Lifeline is also there for you. You can call them and they will basically walk you, hold your hand, they walk you step by step through what you're supposed to do. They will even call appropriate services for you um, wherever that location may be. And so if you blank out or it's someone that you're concerned about and so you have an intensive emotional reaction that's making it hard for you to focus, if you can remember, and this is why Hope of the Day keeps these resources on everything we put out there and try and make the lifeline visible, but just for the recording's sake, if you can keep it out there, and I, I wish I could remember this off the top of my head all the time, but the number 1-800-273-8255, that's one 800 273-8255 is the number that you would call and you're gonna go through a series of recordings uh, to direct you to the right type of human being to speak to. You call them and let them know, I'm trying to answer or support someone who's in a state of crisis and they're gonna walk through everything that they can possibly do to help get that human being safe. So I think it's always important to start there because even though we wanna be proactive, we're currently in a society where we're still going to be dealing with people at the reaction point, at the crisis point. So I can't thank you enough, Jacqueline Carmody, for being on. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jackie. So as we move forward, we have a, a series of guests lined up who come from different intersections on the first responders sort of nexus. And, um, they're gonna be telling you a little bit about their backgrounds because I don't wanna be spoiler for it. So our first guest up, we're just gonna start with, it's Steve, come on up, Steve. We're gonna say hello to Steve. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. All right, so before we really dive in, Steve, tell us, who are you? First, I wanna say thanks for having me on. Um, I think it's great that you guys are doing this and bringing light to such an important topic. Um, my name is Steve Schneider, I am a, <laughs> I'm a former EMT. Uh, I worked down in Champaign for a private ambulance company uh, when I was in college. Um, I decided I'd been a lifeguard all through high school and, and sort of 
wanted to take the next step. Um, unfortunately, when I was a senior in high school, one of my good friends who was a year older than me was killed in a car accident. And seeing his parents go through what they went through made me want to say to my, I said to myself, you know, how can I, how can I stop that? How can I stop people from feeling that way and seeing what they had to go through? And so for me with the medical background, you know, that I started learning as a lifeguard, the next logical step was to become an EMT. So when I went down to Champaign for school, um, I found that there was an EMT certification class and I said, wow, I can also get college credit for this. This is, this is perfect. So I did that. And then I actually, I worked for a few years while I was down in college and, um, you know, it was, uh, very different than I think what you guys are going to hear later on from people who are in Chicago. But, um, you know, there's just, uh, there was, there was a lot of interesting things that you see down in a college town and it was, uh, it was definitely a, a great experience that I cherish and is a huge part of who I am today. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it all. Thank you, Steve. So, you know, there's a few different facets that we want to talk about and the EMT experience is so fascinating, right? Because the call can be a thousand different things for you all. And that's going to be a running theme for all of our guests. But I think one of the things I'd like to sort of start off with very broadly, because of course, you know, we're talking about mental health is just on the front side of being an EMT out in the field. Um, what is there a limit to what links to mental health in terms of a call? You know, is that just, is it always just, we're talking about suicide? Is that you know, what happens if it's substance abuse or something? What's that experience on a day-to-day -day for you? Sure. And, and, you know, like you said, and I'm sure, again, it'll be echoed a few times, That, but you, you really, you never know. You know, when, you know, when that call comes in, um, you know, you're sitting around, you know, waiting on shift and, you know, it can be boring. You could be sitting there playing cards and, you know, otherwise, or, you know, other days there's, you know, 10 calls in the, you know, in an hour and you're going crazy because, you know, all of a sudden there's 15 you're dealing with, you know, it's not just like, oh, today I'm dealing with, you know, suicide today. I'm dealing with eminent birth today. I'm dealing with a gunshot wound. No, it's, it could be all of those in two hours. You know what I mean? So if it's, Right. So, so it, it, it becomes very much about, um, I have ADD and I think it's a great quality to have because you have to be able to switch, you know, switch gears and be prepared for that. And like Jackie was talking about, you know, like just sort of getting, and you actually mentioned it as well, just sort of getting past that hurdle of helping and getting yourself in a mindset where you're saying, okay, you know, I have to do this, you know, um, my, like I said, I, I was a Red Cross lifeguard before I was an EMT. And when I was taking my certification classes, you know, we were going through a practical exam for CPR. And like the good lifeguard that I was, I said, okay, you know, she said, walk me through your steps, call 911. And she looks at me and she goes, you are 911. And, you know, it's like getting into that mindset of I'm, I have to do this, that, you know, there's nobody else. Like it's, it's me and my partner and, and we got to, you know, do our best to stabilize, fix, you know, what we can. And, um, it, it really is interesting, you know, it, because there's such a wide range of things that it's almost hard to have a mental plan going into the day. Um, so the mental plan is be flexible and be prepared to be flexible. Um, and I wish that I could say that seeing certain things gets easier and it doesn't. Um, and I don't know, maybe that's part of why I'm not doing it anymore, but you know, I'm sure that, that you'll hear more on that later, but, um, yeah, there's just uh, you have to be flexible thank you for sharing that um and driving in even more specifically now sort of on the mental health level side of it is what is the what's before you're really out there in a field and a veteran 
what is the training for an EMT for, they say, hey, is there de-escalation training or is it, you know, that, if there's a chapter in the textbook, <laughs> what's the training like for the mental health link situation? You know, I wish I could say that it was, that it was good. I, you know, it's very much focused. It, it really was the, like the conversation that Jackie just had, you know, and, and, and I say that unfortunately, at least there's something, but unfortunately it, it, it isn't, I don't think that there's enough, you know, um, that being said, I, and, uh, you know, I think that oftentimes, at least in my personal experience, when we, when we show up, oftentimes it's too late. You know what I mean? Somebody has taken the act of harming themselves and whether, you know, there, there's a chance to be saved or not. Um, a, a lot of times that, that action has already happened, you know? So, um, for the training that I went through, it was more on, you know, what are you looking at in front of you? You know? And, um, so I, I, it was very much a lot about the suicide prevention line and, and, you know, keeping people engaged and talking to them. Um, but it, it, like you said, it's a chapter in a textbook and, and there's nothing that can be a, a, a better teacher than the actual experience. So, and thank you because one of the things that we really want to sort of drive home here is that because it's imperfect and we're a lot of times in response mode, you hit it kind of right on the head. Unfortunately, sometimes a lot of times when you guys are showing up, it's sort of after the fact sometimes. Um, and so that kind of brings me to the next part of the experience as an EMT in that world. And you kind of foreshadowed this already a little bit, but in that world, you're going to engage in X, Y, and Z. What is it like in terms of the challenges of bringing that home with you? Or is there, you know, I think we'll just leave it open like that and sort of go Sure. Um, it, you know, and, and I think that we all say whatever perfect line of work you're in, um, you know, when I leave the office, I leave all my problems there and, and boy, would it be nice if that, if that was the case, but you know, you, you don't. And, um, you take a lot of that home with you. And, and, you know, for me, it was interesting. Like, you know, like I said, I was, I was in college at the time. And so, you know, I was, I was an 18 year old kid, you know, eight, I was 19, 20 when I was, you know, certified and working and, you know, it's, it can be a lot to process. It, it, it definitely, it helps to have people that you can talk to, you know, being able to have that roommate that I, you know, that I had, who was a very good, still is one of my closest friends, um, be able to say, you know, man, I had a tough day. I had a really tough day today. And, you know, the other, the other side of it is, you know, you just, you have to understand that every job has its problems and every job has its good days and bad days. And for every day that, that you have a day where you feel like, man, I just, I couldn't help anybody today. And even though you did as much as you could, there are days where you come home and you're like, man, I helped some old lady, you know, get to her doctor's appointment. I helped some kid with a, with a broken arm feel better. Like there's a lot of positives. And I think that you really got to focus more on that. You know, the more you can focus on, on the good that you're doing and the positivity that you're bringing to the community, the world around you, the people that you're interacting with, that, that's what kept me going. That's great. And with that sort of, I kind of want to drill in a little bit on, you're not, you know, you're not the only one there. There's, uh, there's partnerships, there's different teams. Would you describe as best as you can, you know, you can only speak for yourself and, and where you were as a department. Um, what's that culture like around mental health? Because we find, and I suspect, I don't want to 
soon, but we may hear that it's different in other groups that we're going to talk to. But do you think there's a, did you feel that it was okay to have those sort of mental health conversations or was it something you sort of brought more to the home? You know, when I, so when I was doing this, I think that there was more stigma because this, we're talking 10, 15 years ago. And I think that we've come a long way in the last 10, 15 years. Um, but I'll never forget. I was, so part of the training is you have to spend clinical ride time on an ambulance and I, and shadowing, uh, you know, EMTs, paramedics, and they let you do some minor stuff. And when between calls, you're just sitting there talking to them. And I remember listening to the two people that I was shadowing, joking about, you know, a call that they had recently been on. And it occurred to me, and I actually said it because I was, you know, I, you know, I was a kid. What am I going to say? You know, I said, I said, wow, you guys kind of have a messed up sense of humor about this. And they, they said, yeah, you know, you kind of have to sometimes, you know, because everybody has their own way of dealing with everything that they see. And, and so you definitely have to have a partner. And these two guys were, had been partners for a long time. You have to have a partner that you can trust, that you can have that relationship with, where you can, you know, joke in the way that you need to or blow off steam in, the, in a safe and effective way that you need to, that they can understand. And, you know, I could go home and tell my wife about my day at work, but she's going to say, Oh man, that, that sounds awesome. Or that's terrible. But you know, I can also say to a coworker the exact same story and they'll understand what I've been through. And so having somebody that has been in the trenches with you and, and really understands what you're going through and, and the things that you saw and the things, the decisions that you had to make, it, it really is very different than talking to a friend or a spouse. And good. I'm glad you shared that because you know, you use the word that always, I always bring up this quote whenever you talk about connected um, and anytime I hear that word, I talk about this quote I heard from um, the Cruz Harrington family that they would say, uh, uh, connection is the currency of wellness. And we at Hope of the Day talk about mental health. We want people to sort of think of it like a bottle of soda and it can shake up and fill it with pressure. Um, and that's sort of a stigma-free way of talking about, well, do you feel depressed or happy or sad? And you can open that bottle of soda when it's really shook up really fast by opening it slowly and valving out that pressure. And you sort of highlighted something that is a powerful tool of being able to talk about what you're going through, because if you don't, that pressure can continue to build and build and build. And, and there may be a pressure that's bigger than even talking can handle. But um, I'd sort of like to know from, from the perspective and where you, you know, in the past career, did you ever find it difficult to even sort of talk with coworkers about anything that's going on is, you know, you're basically, you're wearing a uniform. So sometimes we get the illusion, like you've got to have it all together. And there's people see you on the street and think that way, but you could also bring that into like the locker room or the staff room. Did you ever sort of see that? Or maybe it's a little different in your end. No, I, you know, it, it's, <clears throat> there definitely, I think was, and, and to a big degree still is a big stigma around, you know, talking about your own mental health and, and, you know, how I feel, you know, I feel this way after this call, I feel like this and, you know, boy, that really upset me. I feel depressed. I really, I'd like to talk about this. <clears throat> um, you know, there'll be debriefs, especially after big, you know, events, so to speak. Um, but having a, a culture that allows, you know, people to really talk about their feelings in an open and honest way and in a non-judgmental way is so important for first responders because it's like you said, you know, uh, a lot of people look and see a uniform, but um, I guarantee you that the people that 
speak after me tonight are going to sit there and tell you the same thing. Just because I go home at the end of the day doesn't mean I take the uniform off. You know, I mean, I've stopped at car accidents, you know, on the side of the highway when I'm, you know, just driving through the course of my day. You know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, I don't only respond to emergencies when I'm working sort of thing. So, you know, what, what people have to understand is that these people are people, you know, and, and there's a lot of a lot of people give the you know firefighters and paramedics police officers are uh, you know a hard time but i mean my god the the stuff that that we're doing and seeing and and you know it's it's great that there are these conversations happening because it's it we're moving in a direction of support for them thank you for pointing that out and um before we wind down here you know because i'm pretty sure all of our guests we could be talking for a very long time but there's Maybe like two things I wanted to sort of touch on real quickly. One, mental health is everything. So any call you're on, that person's mental health is impacted, whether it's a visible physiological injury or psychosis. I wonder, to the best of your ability, do you think, is there anything you sort of learned as um, a comforting tool as you're, as you're out there, regardless of whatever it is you engage, you ever sort of, maybe you have sort of like in your toolbox, what did you find one of the best ways to comfort people or sort of engage? Because that I, might be their worst day of their life when you see them. Yeah, I, I chuckle because I actually, <laughs> I use it with my kids. My oldest is six and I have three of them. So um, <laughs> a, a lot of times what I what I do is just try and get it, just trying to get the person to take some deep breaths. Obviously, I try and avoid using the words calm down because for me, if, you tell, if, I'm, if I'm upset and you tell me to calm down, that's the last thing I'm actually going to do. <laughs> and uh, But no, you know, just trying to get the person to take some deep breaths and have them focus and speaking to them in a calm and soothing way and getting them to focus on my voice and taking those deep breaths, communication is going to be a lot easier that way. You know what I mean? Whether the person like, I mean, it, even it, it could be a kid that just broke his arm who's hysterical and you need him to sit still so you can splint the arm. It, you know, it's, it's talking to them in a calm way, making sure that, that they understand who you are and that you're there to help getting them to take some deep breaths and, and connect with you, looking them in the eye, talking to them in, in a soothing way, it really seems to help de-escalate the situation. And I just, you know, thank you for sharing that because that makes me think and, and uh, you can be seeing anarchy, but I'm endlessly amazed at folks in your vocation's ability that even if in your head you're like, Arr! it is often that way. <laughs> but your ability to sort of like, present the calmness i mean can also enshrine or impact somebody else like if they're calm I'm, you know last thing you want to do is see an emt show up to me like, oh. like, you know, so. in fact there is a chapter on the book that says don't do that okay. so but, but but i think that's that's a beautiful thing and so you know um but it's great that you're able to also acknowledge that you got to make sure that you don't put that game face on coming home or into your community and i want people to understand, and I don't care if this is going to be repetitive throughout this episode, but you really have to understand that that's a human being in that uniform. And as much as it is for you personally and everyone in these communities, I'd like to know sort of transitioning, what's something you'd like to sort of drive home for, you know, the civilian population as far as like, whether it's how can they best be supportive to you or just a little nugget you'd like them to know about you? The honest truth is that the, the police officers, the firefighters, the paramedics that are out there, they're there to help and help them help you, you know, be supportive of them, encourage them. They are putting their lives on the line every single day to help people 
that they don't know. And, um, you know, it takes a lot to get over that fear of acting to actually not be that bystander, have that bystander syndrome that you talked about and say, oh, you know, somebody else will deal with it. No, these people are dealing with it every day. And the more we can support them, the more that we can and have their backs, I think the better off we are. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right. So moving on, we're actually, you know, as, as a theme wise, we're, our next two guests are coming from the fire world, as it were. So we're going to be having uh, Al and Liz come on up. Oh, yeah. So everyone welcome Al and Liz. Before we get rocking and rolling, let's just do some formal introductions. Go. Uh, good evening, everyone, and thank you for having me. My name is Liz Crow, and um, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I've worked for the Chicago Fire Department for 27 years as uh, first employee assistance professional. Now I do human relations, and I've been doing trainings with our members and brief counseling and various things, and, um, and I've worked with Al. Al now is a trainer with, down in our academy, so it's my background. All right, Al. Um, Al, uh, Al Medina, uh, I'm a paramedic for the Chicago Fire Department. Uh, I've been with the city for about 14 years. Uh, before the city, I was with uh, Elmhurst Fire Department, and also I worked uh, in an ER prior, as a medic, as a paramedic, um, for six years. Um, so I've seen a lot of aspects of um, mental health, uh, and obviously a lot of trauma and medical emergencies. So that's, uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, I promised myself I wasn't gonna do this because like two days ago by accident, I was watching Backdraft and I was just like, I'm not gonna ask any questions about that. I know that's cheesy, but so what I am gonna ask is, you know, basically kind of like a, a flat direct, from your experience, how have you sort of seen mental health intersect you know, with the level of work that you're at in uh, the sort of first responder spectrum. When I first arrived at the fire department, um, I was told by our medical director that they didn't really need somebody like me because <laughs> they don't have any mental health problems. They're just alcoholics and drug addicts. And I said, oh, <laughs> I'll just stick around a while and see what happens. That was my response. Um, Going forward, it was very much of a suck it up attitude when I started. And it was basically, um, you know, they get paid a good salary, they should be able to ha handle anything and everything that comes their way. And I gotta tell you, we have a phenomenal workforce. Our paramedics and our firefighters are truly above and beyond in what they do and how well they do it. But they're human and they see things um, and out in the community and they're the first ones when we talk about suicide, oftentimes it's our paramedics that are cutting down that person who might have hung themselves. Have, they have to look the families in the eye to tell them that their loved one didn't make it. It's a very stressful job and it's a very emotional job. And yet they, after they leave that scene, they may have to go to another type of scene, it might be a medical, another type of medical emergency. So they carry with them an awful lot of baggage in terms of different events and different things that they see and that accumulative 
type of work can affect them, them as individuals, and it can lead to other problems within their families, um, within their interpersonal relationships. So we take a, a lot of effort in trying to make people aware of doing some self-care, and we're really focusing more on talking, talking to our employees after a big event about what things they're doing, what tools they're using to help themselves cope. Thank you. You know, that's very illuminating because of the fact that, uh, like all the other parts of the professions here, we've, we use a certain term because sometimes even if we're talking, as we've done our work, whether it's law enforcement, fire, talking to active duty or veterans of the military, if we say, hey, you know, how are you feeling? Do you feel depressed? Have you been traumatized? You get a lot of stone facing. And so we've even found that to navigate stigma, which again is the biggest silencing obstacle, we've even sort of started to use a, a phrase called psychological injury. And sometimes that helps because we say, you know, you think about that soda, soda bottle built with pressure, you've ever experienced an injury because seeing those scenes, having to talk to people over and over again, it could be anything from a strain or a twisted ankle level to like a broken leg kind of a thing. Um, so out there in the field, you know, what's the, I, I asked, you know, we asked for EMT, what is your level of preparation just to engage the public? Hmm, good question. <laughs> that was a lot in there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. First of all, it's a 24 hour shift, right? I mean, it's a 24 hour shift. Um, me personally, I would prepare myself the day before, you know, uh, making sure that I'm, I'm, I'm resting the day before. Um, I make sure that I'm not out late. I make sure that I'm hydrated even that night before going into the next day, because as paramedics, you know, uh, there's a myth out there that's that, that thinks that we're at the firehouse all the time and we take naps and we're sleeping all the time, but there's any given day we can, we can go out on a run and not be back to the firehouse for five to eight hours. Um, we miss lunch. We're going to 7-Eleven. We're going to White Castle. We're going to wherever just to grab something really quick, which is probably not a good thing, but that's what we have at that, you know, at that time. I always, uh, I was telling Mike, you know, uh, the things that we see is not normal. It's not normal. Um, and a lot of people think another myth is that we got into this. Uh, uh, you're a paramedic. You should be able to handle it. Um, and... And I think uh, being watching all this stuff, I mean, being able to handle it, and I believe Steve brought something up uh, earlier, or you did, that uh, when you, how, how was the, the table in the, in the kitchen in the firehouse? Are they talking, if we come back from a call from a pediatric that just went into a cardiac arrest, and we come back to the firehouse, are we there to like, hey, we're gonna talk about this? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I would lo have loved to, but no, we gotta be ready for that next call and we got to get our ambulance ready. We got to get our equipment ready, and we got to take another another call. And what that does is, it puts that in the back of my mind, and I take the next call. And um, if I can say this, uh, the Salvation Army came to the academy, and they said, "What's the worst thing about being a paramedic?" You know, usually I'm used to hearing the question, "What's the worst thing you ever seen?" And they said, "What's the worst thing about being a Chicago Fire Department paramedic?" And I said, um, "We don't guard our minds well enough." Um, and they didn't understand that. And what I said was, you know, if you have a kid, when I say kid, a 20-year-old, 25-year-old that comes into the fire department as a paramedic, and they start to see um, all these calls, you know, kids, uh, hangings. And by the way, when you said hangings, by the way, uh, on a personal note, those are the worst calls that I go on. Uh, they're eerie, and I want to know why that happened. So, 
those are not really good for me to go on. Not that it, I still do my job, but it's still, uh, they're, they're eerie to me. Yeah, they're very tough. Um, and, and, and seeing all that stuff, you know, we become professionals at hiding it, you know, and sometimes as years goes on, uh, me, me personally, you know, I don't drink or smoke anymore, but there's, there, sometimes there, it's easy to turn to that so we can bury it. Um, because if you're in this field, like a, that 20 year old is now 40 years old, how much has he or she buried that? And what's the, how are they going to release that? How are they going to vent that? Um, and I think Steve said it. I, I mean, I don't bring, I've been on thousands of calls and I've never um, uh, brought my job home. Uh, my wife probably knows about six calls that I've been on only because they were newsworthy. And she's like, were you on that? And I was like, yes, I was on that. But other than that, the other thousands of calls, she doesn't know. And me personally, I would go see my pastor the next day. If I had a rough 24-hour shift, if I had a bad call, I would, I would go home, shower, eat, and go see him. And he would hear me out. I would cry to him. I would laugh with him. But the thing he did was he listened. That's, thank you for putting a lot in there. Um, that's really powerful. And you brought up some really key things there that I'd like to sort of draw people's attention to, you know, and it's both, it's the drinking, but also talking to your pastor. Because we don't educate on mental health, and that's part of stigma, we don't make resources visible. We also don't make education on signs and symptoms. We don't make self-recognition, public recognition visible. So what happens is that by hook or crook, people will do anything to make themselves feel better, Okay. And there's, when we talk about that valving idea, going for a run, making a nice meal, petting the dog, sleeping, crying into the void, those are all great. But as a core reality, some people are gonna find their valve in a bottle, in a joint, and other destructive, you know, destructive to themselves, destructive to the community ways. But faith and education and you know people going out and sort of studying and learning about themselves but faith uh spirituality holistic things that are sort of just about getting in touch meditation there's this wide spectrum of tools to be used and i'd sort of like to talk about because we know and you already brought this up that people are turning a lot to the some of the more destructive things um i'd like to know from both liz and al what are things that maybe are going on or that could be going on to sort of boost for fire to for their wellness healthier avenues you know is there a way to sort of raise the visibility of those things so we put out posters that basically put the signs and symptoms of PTSD so people with contact information and how to how to get some help and we let people know about how the percentage of, of people who work in the field as first responders their exposure to PTSD is about 85%. But having 85%, there's still hope in the fact that that doesn't mean it's career ending, nor does it mean that people can't survive and still have happy lives. We kind of treat it like with this job, nobody's gonna get out without having a bout of PTSD, especially given what Al has done and the types of things that our police officers, our paramedics and our EMTs see. Um, it's just the nature. And we try to educate people from the very beginning in the academy. Al now does an education piece. We, we can tell people that it's going to be difficult, but until they experience it, 
They really don't believe that. We also give out little cards on what is depression and, and what are the signs of suicide. We can't, they're little like four by five cards so people can put them in the rig or pass them out to one another. Uh, we try really hard to let people know that there's alternatives. I have a paramedic firefighter who took a yoga for first responders class and she is trying to teach that. And when we have an, uh, a debriefing, which is after a major event, when our employees respond to, for example, last year in Little Village when we lost 10 children. Hmm. We had several debriefings after that where we brought in professionals and peers who are trained to listen, to talk about how people's emotions happen after a big event where there's no survivors. And then we had Denise come in and she did a yoga for first responders, teaching people breathing techniques. So we do a sequence of things. Are we perfect at it? No. Do, can we improve? Absolutely. But the good news is it, it's, we've come a long way from suck it up attitude, I believe. So. Well, that's good. Um, and it's great to hear that because what we've learned is, and again, broken record here, but because of stigma, you know, a rule for hope for the day is that you, we got to meet people where they are, not where we want, assume them to be. So hearing that it's folks with inside of the community, that's honestly a very big part of removing the obstacles when it's coming from people who are in the field, coming from, look, I'm, you're not alone, that, that actually communicates even better than if I were to show up on site, you know, and, and talk to folks. And to that effect, I kind of want to talk about this idea that uh, came to me when you were, you were talking about sort of some of these methods, is that people like you, so like Al, you know, along with Liz, like, are there, you know, are you interested and are there other folks who sort of are starting to sort of make a goal of trying to talk? Because I think one of our projects that we're working on is, is a surrogate project with veterans uh, called Project Red Team. And we have a great gentleman named Ryan Shannon who's spearheaded that. And he said something to me that really blew my mind. He said, you know, okay, I can talk to the GI and I can talk to the private and the corporal and, and they're with me on it. But until we get our COs on board, you know, they're going to be afraid to say anything because then they're on paper. So when you were talking about getting people to report out and we put the posters up, I don't know how much you can talk about it, but I like to sort of go on that as like. So that comes, I, have, um, I need to get permission from the upper management. And that goes as far, our fire commissioner is very supportive, as well as our, I report to the first deputy fire commissioner, and she is also very supportive. And anytime we have a, an event that takes place, uh, those are the people that call me first. They also follow up to make sure that people were touched and people had an opportunity to get services or resources. So I think we have a very responsive management. But we do have a stigma. We do have people who don't want to, to accept that, that the help that we give them is good enough or, or, they, or they feel that they're, they don't need it, that they're, it's a very tough group to get into in terms of some, some people you just have to kind of let them come to you on their own terms and we give them some space. Some people will, some people, you know, need, like Al goes through his pastor. That's awesome. I just want to make sure people get services. They don't have to come to me, but I want to make sure that they know about resources and we try to make them aware of that. Myself and I'm an EAP too, Lisa Ann Vasey, who works with me. That's great. And could you also just for, uh, for our listeners explain what does EAP mean? Employees Assistance Professional. 
great. And just for folks, just long story short, that's, you know, you turn and you need mental health services and resources. That's, there's corporate entities that do that and then obviously in field things. So, um, you know, before we wind, wind on for this section here, I think it's really important for people to, again, appreciate that, you know, sometimes you could be driving down the highway or down the street and you see, you know, there's the lights and there's the EMTs and there they are and they're running around and you're like, oh, great, that's it, that's, you know, and they get in, they get in, they're home and they don't see necessarily the human being. It's almost like a soldier and we're gonna talk with the cops soon too. So same questions to you is sort of um, a few things. What are some things you've learned in terms of being able to engage the public when you gotta go out there and put that game face on? What are some sort of strategies you sort of noticed that do help at least keep your composure out there in the field and get you stable enough so that you can get to your pastor. You know what I'm asking there? Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, like, sort of like, how do I prepare myself with the To prepare public? and being able to, like, hold that in until you get to your pastor. You know, it's gotta come out sometime, but, like, that healthy outlet, you know, what's what yeah. have you learned to sort of... Uh, I mean, I give you a perfect example um, of a guy that I still, to this day, I I, uh, I still meet with him and his wife. Uh, he, he attempted suicide. Um, he, he was in a, in a garage, carbon monoxide, and I went there, and the first thing I told him was, I'm taking off my patch. You know, the police officers were there. Everybody, his wife was like, yeah, just get him, go to, take him to the hospital. But then, uh, you know, he was really angry, and I told him, hey, I'm taking off my patch. I'm a man here. You know, what's going on? This is not, this is not worth it. And um, so he looked at me, and he goes, like, who are you? You know, he, so he got even more upset. So I'm like, oh, I'm going down the wrong avenue. You know, I, I go, I go, why? I, I don't want to just take you to the hospital. I think, you know, uh, taking your life is, you know, you're not going to take it today while you're in my ambulance. And he's like, well, you know, what are you going to teach me? So then, uh, long story short, we talked for about a half hour. And uh, we went to the hospital. Um, him and his wife, they made up for whatever reason was going on. But uh, he, he actually, uh, I still have, uh, for the last three years, I still meet with him. Just, and that's one person. Now, this happened like maybe four or five years ago. So I wouldn't have did that maybe 10 years ago, only because I didn't know the importance. Uh, I would have treated him just like a patient and got him in the ambulance, told the police, meet us at the hospital, let's just go. But uh, I just, I said, you know what, I'm gonna try a little compassion and see how far I get with it. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, and, and, I'm not, and that's not just for me to like, hey, I saved his life, it, it was more than it was more than that because I, I, I tried it and I see how far it went and it, and it, and it was successful. Um, well, I think that's perfect because it's sort of, as we're running out here today, that circles back to how you found value through your pastor. Mm -hmm. That communication and that listening, instead of treating them as a patient or that individual. Right. And I think that that's a good nugget to take away. And that's probably a hard discipline. You're on a lot of calls. It can be easy to go into autom automated mode, but sort of stressing the fact that if you can sort of build that organic sort of connection is probably gonna be the most powerful stuff. Because when we talk about people with mental health crisis, it's very easy to just say, oh, that's a crazy person. Let's just get them bound up on a gurney and off, and that's the end of it. So, I mean, that's a very powerful you know, thing to hear to just treat them as a human being. Our central rule at Hope for the Day, or central rule, in order to be proactive, we can tell you this and the other. But the rule is you have to treat the dignity, uh, every individual with the dignity. I'm gonna edit that out. <laughs> is respect the dignity of every individual. Yes. Um, it's too easy to systemize, but everyone has their own story. And two people who say they're depressed, one from marriage, one from whatever. Mm -hmm. And if you just assume there's some sort of script you're supposed to read. So 
I think that works inversely both for you from, it's not really just a job, it's a vocation, right? So I think as we're closing out, I'd like to sort of know just from the personal side, what you'd like, you know, folks to know that maybe they hadn't considered, you know, from the fire paramedics world. And so I, that's both for you and Liz. I guess I would like to just let people know that we have a community of helpers. So don't ever, the isolation people feel sometimes, especially around depression, and they don't feel worthy or they feel like they're a burden and they can't reach out and make that call to 911 or they can't reach out to anyone. Um, they need to understand that the people who work behind those badges really care and really want to make a difference and improve the city and improve the lives of people. So please use the services. Yeah, and, and we've made a large uh, movement towards that. I know the police officers, they have the CIT program. We also have a CIM program, which is a crisis identification management. Um, what that does is it collaborates police, police officers, fire, and paramedics on how to, how to handle a situation when we have someone with mental illness. Not just to like, you know, because there's a lot of lights. Think about that. Just someone coming in the neighborhood, you got blue lights, you got red lights, you got an engine, you got an ambulance, you got a squad car, you got that, that right there just, yeah, you got, yeah, supervisor, that, 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 that seems to escalate, um, but it's not escalating. When we have CIT people and CIM uh, professionals there that have taken these classes, those people care. You know, whether you're wearing a police uniform or a fire uniform, what they do is they, they want to get that person to the proper facility. You know, where I, you said earlier, where just get them to the ER. Well, that's, that was, we're learning, if I can say this, it was a disservice just to take them to the closest hospital. Now we know we can take them to a proper facility to get proper care, to get proper medication or, or proper just treatment in general. Um, we're making strides for that um, now. As, as we have that twice a month at our academy, which, is, which I think is great. Um, and I get the candidates too. Uh, the candidates, I, I speak to the candidates and let them know, you know, um, it's, I, I always call it the, the, the timeline is five years. You know, they're great. They want to do the best thing the first couple of years. But then after they start to get that little taste of burnout, they start to get a little, a little edgy, a little, a little bitter. And I tell them, be careful for that. Be careful for, uh, watch your mind, because when that starts to happen, you still have to treat that patient with compassion, regardless of what their, what their uh, complaint is. Um, so the CIM program and, and handling the candidates before they go out, it's, a, it's, a, it's not only how to treat emergencies, but also how to treat your mind um, um, before you go out there in the streets. You know, to be, care, be aware of the signs and symptoms um, of what, how your outlet is and your venting. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. And I think, um, I cannot thank you all for being guests so much because I want people to sort of pay attention to the fact that these were not conversations that were being had 10 or 15 years ago internally. Yes, and so, Alan, Liz, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. As we tra transition into our uh, last guests here, I want to I want to focus in on that conversations we're having now that we weren't having 10 and 15 and 20 years ago because it goes without saying that anytime in, in any environment when you talk about law enforcement, people are gonna have very strong emotions and reactions to it. 
and there's a lot of conversations that are happening right now that if we're dedicated to improving our communities, improving our mental health, improving our societies, those conversations need to be had not just in a bubble and in a vacuum, but need to have all impacted parties at the table. So I am super, super thrilled uh, to have our last guest for tonight on. We're gonna have Kate and Teresa on, come on up. Hi, good evening. I'm Officer Kate Sanchez. I'm a crisis intervention team trained. I'm a peer support member. I work in an area that has one of the leading, is leading the city in calls for service um, with individuals in mental crisis. My, my name is Officer Teresa Kelly. Um, I work in the 18th district. I'm also a CIT trained officer. I'm also a uh, mental health clinician outside of uh, CPD, and I also service um, first responders in mental health. So thank you very much for joining us. You know, there's so many different directions we could go in, but I, <laughs> um, but I think one of the important things we need to talk about and really sort of hear from, you know, from your experiences is really this idea about when the call comes, a lot of times it's law enforcement who's there first. It's police officers who are there first, even before the ambulance is on fire. And, you know, you're in a mode where it's supposed to be responding, you know, if someone's in an act of a crime or this or that or the other. So maybe just sort of talk about like what, what that experience is when you're coming to someone who ultimately needs help and like what that looks like, you know, as far as you can sort of speak to it, right? Like that sort of shift in. That's actually a really good question because, um, and I think Steve, you talked about it a little bit about being prepared to not be prepared. I mean, in the sense of you're, you, you don't know what to expect. Um, and one of the first things that um, I do on scene is, you know, is just really evaluating what I can see, you know, um, what's going on, um, what's, you know, is there any, are there any thing surrounding an individual in crisis that maybe is triggering it? Can we talk to a, maybe a family member might be that reason why someone's in crisis. Could we pull that family member away? Or really it's, it's very much observing in a, in a very short amount of time. And I think that's a skill that you hone the, the longer you're on, on the job on, and whether you're, you know, EMT, paramedic, fire, um, or police. But I think it's something that truly comes from experience, um, but really observing in that very first couple seconds is what's going on is, is crucial. What do you think? I think what people um, sometimes forget, like, it, like Steve had said initially, is that, you know, though we're coming on scene in a uniform, we are human as well. So when the call comes through, we have to assess our own levels of fear first and foremost because you know what police are facing is a little bit different than what maybe a firefighter or an EMT um, responder would face so we're first have to deal with and cope with our own fears but only and we only have minutes to maybe seconds of time to do that before we have to face whatever the threat the threat would be and in doing so we also have to help, like Steve said, 
the strangers in need, right? So that transition, I think, comes with very good training. And I mean, I do commend the police department for putting much more focus on our um, EAP program and the mental health and stability of officers on and off of work. Um, so making that transition on scene, you know, like I said, it has to be made within, within minutes to seconds. And that's when the training comes in. So um, training op is optimal for officers. And then putting your fears or whatever those emotions are you're having on scene and in the moment um, to the back burner. And oftentimes I think that, um, like Steve said as well, putting those, con continuing to put those um, emotions um, on the back burner tends to build up over time. And then that's when you see, unfortunately, sometimes you see um, officers, you know, taking their own lives or, you know, the stressors getting the best of them. So. So and I think we're going to I do want to talk about that quite a bit. But one of the things before we, we sort of talk about the internal experience was, like I said earlier, where we're kind of in a Star Trek moment where we're doing a lot more with mental health in a lot of different fields and in law enforcement. This was not a conversation, and this was a conversation that has been compelled. And so before we talk about the, the, the experience side, I want to talk about CIT, because that was not something that was uh, SOP, a standard operating procedure, for a long time. So I'd really love to know, like, what does that mean? Um, what are the goals inside of CPD as far as you, you can talk about that? Sure. Um, so Crisis Intervention Team, CIT, is an international uh, program. Um, it's based um, on a CIT model that was developed at the University of Memphis, and uh, I believe in late 80s. Um, CPD's had it in place for, I think, about 15 years, and it's a voluntary training. It's 40 hours. Um, it's pretty intense. We learn a lot of um, recognizing just very, very basic um, signs and symptoms of mental illness or crisis and also um, really about de-escalation and, and how to um, calm someone down and how to speak someone to maybe uh, calm someone down, but also recognizing, and again, I, for me, my experience has been recently really learning what, um, what could trigger someone um, what Al, you talked about it earlier about saying something that, oh, maybe I'm going down the wrong direction, so I'm going to step back. Um, I, literally just a couple days ago, um, talking to a mom before we were going to do a transport um, of an individual to the hospital, you know, mom, who would your daughter respond better to, a male officer or a female officer? And that really can play a major part in how um, the direction uh, a response goes. And so recognizing that, and that's part of that CIT training. Um, and I think one of the strengths of CIT is that you have to have a couple years on the job before you can take the training. Um, and that thought process is because you've now had experience interacting with people of all walks of life um, and you have that experience and that exposure and now you, you can take that knowledge and you can retain that training better than if you maybe had it in the academy where you don't have that street experience. So that's, I mean, our, our program has been in, um, in place for about 15 years. Um, it's a great, great, great program. Um, I can't say enough about it. I learned a lot. In fact, some of the tactics I use with my almost nine-year-old sometimes, you know, they work a little bit. I hone them on, hone them at 
home. Um, so there's skills really that, that cross every response that we can. Because let's be honest, when, when someone calls the police, it's not to say hi. <laughs> it's not to say, hey, you know, come on over, we're having a cookout. It's someone's crisis. Whatever it may be, it's someone's crisis. It's someone's crisis. So um, the training's been good to for all responses. And I think that's, I don't know if you want to add to that. Well, in addition to the CIT program, all officers are trained in de-escalation. So we do get, although it's not as intensive and it's not 40 hours, um, throughout the year we are we are continuing to educate all officers on de-escalation um, and mental health and I want to paint a little bit of a picture from the civilian side about that too is that if somebody says okay I hear say T and all this kind of stuff but is it lip service or de-escalation is that lip service but um, if someone there are certain mental health conditions for instance where if you are clinically trained um, you know, if you think about law enforcement, you might imagine if you've never been through the training, you know, your job is to make sure you're in a space where you can control the space. You have to, for your own safety, you have to sort of take a, a, a leader, like a bold, like leadership position and control the space and, you know, use firm commands and et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, like at a clinical level, like if somebody's in a certain state, you don't want to like corner them and you don't want to use like an assertive voice and, 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 this is because we don't shy away from realities. There's a plain black and white reality that there's the formal training for a law enforcement officer anywhere in the country has come face to face with someone who's in a mental health crisis. And that training has been maybe not so productive for the mental health individual. And it wasn't the fault of the law enforcement officer. They did what they have to do to stay safe and the, the lack of understanding about a mental health crisis. So the importance of CIT and the importance of de-escalation is to bridge a gap that because we did not appreciate mental health, it did quite frankly cost people lives and cost law enforcement their jobs and reputations and things like that. So I cannot sort of underline enough the absolute importance of seeing that programs exist and seeing them continue to grow and making sure community members encourage it. Um, and to the point, we had our first sort of, I said there wasn't gonna be Q and A, but I can't resist a well-placed question. So before we sort of talk about the law enforcement experience personally, if someone was in psychosis or whatever it may be, as a family member calling 911, should you ask for a CAT officer? Is that useful? Absolutely, absolutely. and. Um, Part of what the CIT program, and we work with a lot of um, uh, great agencies like Hope for the Day, um, but to get out, get the word out, you know, ask for a CIT officer, ask for one, ask for one, ask for one. Um, we, uh, one will be sent if they're available. Um, and, you know, I, I hear a lot of officers that um, if, if a CIT officer is not available, they will make themselves available and they'll come up over the radio and say, hey, you know, squad, I'm going to take that. I'll, I'll, I'll ride on that job. So please, please, um, you know, tell anybody. Um, I do also have to put a little plug in here for um, Smart 911, which is a wonderful system with the city um, that you uh, can register your number. So my cell number is connected to my husband's cell number so that if there was an emergency, they would have our residents connected with that. And then also um, that we have a young child. 
Um, and so you can put as much information in as you want in that. It's, it's secured, it's private, um, or as little. But um, what we try to do is um, get that word out so that maybe um, a family that has an adult child at home living with mental illness, um, hey, sirens or lights are a trigger. Let's not, you know, could you not arrive um, if, if we have an emergency? So it's little things like that that can just really help the response and the, and the overall outcome of that incident um, and help make our jobs a little bit easier. So um, did that answer your oh, question? Yeah. No. <laughs> did you? Thank you so much. Um, because it also goes to, to the point we don't know what we don't know. And that's oftentimes what hurts us as a community or the things that we didn't know we didn't know. And to that point, if, you know, especially if you're listening and wondering, you know, people will say, well, we wanna, whenever it comes to the discussion of law enforcement and police and hey, we want reforms, we want this. A powerful thing you can be asking is, hey, do, do our agencies, wherever you are, rural, urban, suburban, do we have CIT? You wanna talk about being able to improve the relationship between communities and police, Ask, is there CAT training? And ask the people who fund and finance those things, hey, can we make that a mandate so that our officers are being the best equipped possible to meet the community where they are and not just be given tools where you're going in half supplied? Um, and so thank you for, for sharing that. I didn't know about that program. I want you to just, for recording sake, please repeat it one more time, that 911 uh, uh, It's Sure, it's uh, called Smart 911. If you um, go onto the City of Chicago website and kind of just, you know, type it in, um, it'll come up and it'll walk through you through the steps of, of um, signing up for it. So um, you can sign up for text messages too. Um, my husband and I did that, and then we were getting text messages for every single traffic uh, thing. So we, we kind of cut back on that, um, in, especially in the middle of the night. But um, it's, it, it is very helpful. Um, and we have some good success with that, some success stories, because we've been able to, you know, recognize that how we're going to respond a little bit differently um, to, to a situation. So smart 911. Smart 911. Google it. Um, and so that brings me, I think I, I want to sort of talk about the human being inside of the uniform. And, you know, we obviously can't speak for the whole million plus law enforcement on the planet and the 45,000, 50,000 in Chicago? That's not that many. Chicagoland area uniform. Anyway. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah. With, with <laughs> County, I was like, wow, that's a lot. But um, <laughs> we grew. <laughs> let's just talk about sort of, all right, you're, you go out there and there's an even added um, nature of the danger level. And unfortunately, uh, according to a New York Times article that was published in March of 2019, over the last five years, uh, as of March 2019, over the last five years, more police officers have died by suicide than in uh, active conflict in the line of duty. Um, we know it's a problem everywhere, but let's talk about sort of mental health care for law enforcement. I'm taking a civilian wild guess that I see a strong correlation in my direct work. I see a strong correlation between active duty and veterans of the military and the mindsets of officers out on the field, a lot of sort of trying to be operational readiness and there's a whole bunch of stigma that comes with it. So I'd just like to hear from sort of your experiences and uh, what you, you know. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna speak first and then I'll let the clinician talk about it. Um, so 
someone and I don't know if it was Steve or Al talked about that going from job to job and that compartmentalizing um, that first issue um, or that first call or that first challenge that you just had. And I think um, by the end of the day, you're so exhausted that the tendency to just say, oh, I'm just not going to deal with it right now um, is there. And um, one of the things that I find is when I'm driving home after my shift, I like to just listen to music. Um, for me, it's 90s country, so don't judge. Um, but that kind of calms me down, and then I can start to think about it. I'm very, very fortunate that I'm married to a, a Chicago police uh, detective, and so um, I am able to share some of my um, my bad days. And he gets it. He really gets it. Um, so I'm very fortunate that way. Um, but that I think that's the hardest thing for us. Um, I'm a mom. Officer Kelly here is a mom. Um, I think we put a lot as moms out there. We put a lot on ourselves. Um, and I think that kind of adds to that. We always have to make sure that we people we work with can count on us and know that they can count on us. And we're always there and we're ready. Um, and then at the same time, we have to go, you know, switch into mom gear when we get home. Um, and then sometimes even jobs with young children uh, where they're hurt or there's abuse or neglect or anything is, is pretty, is pretty traumatic. Um, personally, I'm, I'm pretty proactive in my mental health. Um, I have someone that I talk to on a regular basis, um, that it's outside of my, my husband. Um, one thing I want to share before I, I hand over the mic is that, um, as a peer support member, I have the, um, advantage to talk to some of the new recruits before they graduate from the academy. And, it's kind of my mantra. I say, it's not a matter of if you're going to need someone to talk to, it's a matter of when. So try to get those support systems into place. What, whoever it may be, it you know might not be a significant other. It might have to be someone professional. But just get those support systems in place because you will need them. And what's refreshing to see is that um, kids, I know Al used it earlier, kids, um, the younger officers coming on are really receptive to that. They're, they're like, yep, going to do that. I have someone. I know that I'm going to see some things that are going to affect me, um, and I'm going to get that support system in place. So that's really um, very refreshing to see. So and then I think I'm going to switch it over. <laughs> uh, I think that was well said. <laughs> um, I would reiterate that, and the peer support program that the that um, CPD offers, I'm sure the fire department has it as well, um, but it's another trained program in which officers, um, officers go through where when a fellow officer is in need or is in crisis that they can call on. So we do have a hotline uh, where, we, where officers are available 24 hours a day um, to talk to one of their colleagues. Um, I think it was mentioned earlier um, how maybe first responders in general tend to put on, you know, somewhat of a of a shield, or they tend to put on, you know, a face of uh, toughness um, because this is this is the face that they wear most hours of their day. So, you know, for for them to take that off when they get home is a little bit more difficult, easier said than done, I think. So then, uh, when they go home and they don't um, properly or appropriately make that transition into their personal life, um, that's when I think they suffer the most sometimes. So, you know, making these resources available to them 
on the, on the job and off the job, I think is pertinent. And having as much support from our communities as possible is something that really goes a long way um, in the, the mind and the heart of a police officer, more than people would, would know. Uh, adding on to that, um, a simple thank you, as Officer Kelly said, a simple thank you goes so, so far um, because it's usually when you've had a really bad day um, and you get that thank you and you're like, okay, I'm still doing the right thing. So I just wanted to share that. And I really appreciate that. And it's important for people to understand that, you know, we've reiterated over and over again about there's more than it's beyond the uniform. These are human beings. Um, and a lot of times, especially for police, not dancing around it, become a big, you know, it's like bulls, like a, well, it used to be a term for bulls, but I mean, like, you become an easy target for a lot of frustrations that people can have in day-to-day -day in society, but um, remembering the human being is a good way to sort of keep that communication open. Um, one of the things that you talked about that I think is important to also remember here and um, you've kind of hit it on, but I'm going to just double it a little further. When you were talking about what you were talking with the trainees, and it's not a matter of, of if, but when, and we always talk about this idea of psychological injury. If you think of like an athlete going out, you're going to get knocks and bruises, and you got to take care of them. But civilian, law enforcement, any profession, you're basically re recognizing the same thing. You're going to go out there, you are going to get injured, and this is our recovery point. So I'd love to know, for you personally, what sort of helped maintain your sort of resilience? You know, is there, I, you know, I mean, you have shared like talking with your husband and, and, and sharing, but just other sort of game tips. Um, well, I've been in I've been in the field of mental health for 20, 20 years now. I got my license uh, over maybe thirteen years ago or so. Um, so I'm very dedicated to the cause to begin with. So I'm very that makes me very aware of my own personal struggles and you know, and those of my fellow, of my colleagues, my friends, family. Um, I think so that, I think that's an advantage um, that I have. Um, I also am the daughter of a police officer, the sister of a Chicago police officer, and significant other of a Chicago police officer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, and like Kate said, that's actually helpful for us because there's an understanding. Um, we don't have to fight the, um, you know, the the explanations uh, when you get home. You don't have to struggle to to explain. You know, the day that you've had um, makes it much easier for police officers to, you know, you know, to to be understood when you're when you have family and friends that are also officers. So, I think uh, also. Um, I have found two things um, that help me personally. Um, when I'm feeling a little antsy, when I'm feeling like this is starting to kind of wear on me, um, we actually go, and it kind of just comes up at that time, we actually go visit family. Um, my husband and I, we usually go to his family in Indiana, which are a very large family, and there's always something going on. So it's fun. Um, and that kind of recenters me. Um, and then one of my favorite things to do when I've had a really bad day is um, when my my son um, is going to sleep, I will lie down next to him and just lying next to him kind of calms me down and it brings me back to why I get up and go to work every day and, and 
really that, that helps me a great deal. So it's the music, it's the family. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, calming myself down at the end of the day is really what helps me. So. And I love that. And I think, you know, before we close out today for a big thing is for those listening, um, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. So there, but there's, I always think about the folks who are listening who may be impacted the mental health in different ways and what's things we could talk to them. So I'm wondering about what if there is a police officer, whether it's in Chicago or anywhere, you know, um, and they're hearing this. And so there's two things I sort of want to ask about one, and this might be for you, officer Teresa, um, there's generally three or four benchmarks of symptoms of PTSD. And I was thinking about this with both from fire medics and EMT. Would you be able to sort of talk about them? Maybe sort of like the general benchmarks, like, Hey, if you're noticing this, I don't want to put you on the spot. I mean, I, I can, I can sort of pull it up and say, say something about, but if you, I think it's just great having, you know, from the horse's mouth. <laughs> well, I think that if you're experiencing symptoms of isolation from family and friends, um, if you're, if you, you know, obviously if you find yourself um, not wanting to be around, not wanting to be, yeah, not wanting to obviously isolate, not wanting to be um, engaged in, you know, your regular activities of work and, um, your social life, um, you know, you obviously experienced a trauma in your life, you know, um, and how relevant that is to you. You're experiencing flashbacks, obviously, if you're having, um, you know, upsetting memories or trouble sleeping at night. These are some of the benchmarks of PTSD that, um, Probably. Yeah, and and that's great. And I just and it's important because people say, oh, if you're having PTSD, speak out. But it just helps to know specifically, and and you don't have to have all all of them. You have one or the other, and just to sort of reiterate that, you know, post traumatic stress disorder. Okay, when we talk about psychological injuries, anytime you experience an intensive emotional experience, okay. And this is, remember the dignity of the individual is that there's not one set category, okay? So it can be very visible or it can be very subtle. You could have seen a, a horrible car wreck or had a flash of violence, um, like directly at you. Or you could have just heard a gunshot or heard something. It could have been something that scared you, but in the context, it wasn't grisly or gory or anything like that. It just has to be something that dramatically Im impacted you. And if you find yourself revisiting those thoughts over and over again, recurring themes, that's a sign. That's your brain letting you know you've had a sprain, okay? If you find yourself losing sleep, having nightmares, things like that, that's a sign. Um, what Officer Teresa was talking about with wanting to stay away from others and withdrawing, typically, if you find your thoughts so wound up in the experience that when you're around people, you feel like it's the only thing that you really want to talk about. So you don't want to be around anyone else because they're going to talk about football or the weather. And to you, that's just completely, you can't even open up about that because you have this other thing building in your head. That's a sign. That's a sign of aversion, okay? Anytime you have something like that, and it can manifest, that valving vent can also manifest, and because it's in your head, you get angry more, you get agitated more, 
or you find yourself crying more whenever it comes up. Any one of those, any of them together, those are signs of a psychological injury. Those are signs that it's natural, it's okay, it happens. And that's a sign for you to reach out and you'd be looking for folks who help and support programs just as exactly what um, Officer Kate and Officer Teresa has talked about. So it's really important for people to hear that, to hear it from the people who actually are in, in the ish together. I could swear on this, but I'm not gonna. Um, but before I round out, I think we've seen a pattern here. I really would like to sort of give you the platform to sort of what's some things you'd like folks to know, and whether that's the brothers and sisters in uniform or just the general public. I think um, Al brought it up. No, Liz, you brought it up that we all took this job to help people. And I know it's kind of cliche sometimes, but we, we really did. And, and um, for different reasons, uh, different you know backgrounds, our backstories and stuff. But bottom line, when you have that thank you or you have that I did I did a good thing today, I helped someone, that's the satisfaction that we um, go home with. So um, again, we're, we're, we have a little, we're responding to people's crisis, whatever it may be, we're responding to people's crisis. And um, keeping that in mind, and we're here to help, is really what it boils down to, I think. So. Um, I would say the same. Um, that, you know, officers obviously are, are people too. I think people like seeing us out of uniform. Um, sorry, I have my uniform on today. <laughs> Just your pants. Just my pants. Um, but I do think that people like seeing us out of uniform and I think it's important also for officers to, um, to be more receptive to the community and to, you know, accept, um, you know, maybe to be more open to um, communicating, you know, what their, what their own personal, you know, struggles are, what their, yeah, and sharing their stories with people. Um, instead of only sharing it with officers. So although that's one of my coping mechanisms, it's also very important, I think, for, for first responders in general to, you know, to step outside of their comfort zone and to make sure that they're staying connected to their family and their friends and people that are not sharing the same stories over and over again. Because like you just said, when you're, whether or not you're experiencing PTSD, even unknowingly, sometimes people have PTSD and they don't even know it because they're, you know, harboring maybe some, some traumas or suppressing some traumas or experiences that, um, that they're continually triggered by. And sometimes that's through a simple conversation with a fellow officer, you know, that, and so some of the times those symptoms go un, unnoticed and, you know, untreated and unfortunately, sometimes it's too late. So I just want people to be aware that as much as, you know, we, you know, we, we reach out to the communities that are, all, that are in crisis, um, sometimes the person behind the uniform is also ex in crisis. And that's, I think, such an excellent way for us to wind down tonight. For everyone who's listening, I want you to really take home to these stories. These are different intersections at the very front lines of the suicide prevention spectrum. And these are human beings who, yeah, it's a job, but ultimately it's a vocation, it's a commitment. And in a lot of ways, it's also a stewardship of 
protecting and keeping us alive and keeping the community stable. And there's inadequacies in the systems and infrastructures, and there's always room for improvement. But I want everyone to pay attention to the fact that both our mental health, our well-being, our systems, and everyone involved gets better through conversations, gets better through talking and trying to connect with each other as human beings and not as badge or medic or cop, but as a person who took on that role. And that's both the civilian and to the other side of, of the line there because there actually isn't a line. And the way we're all connected to that is we take this truth home with us that it's okay not to be okay because silence is causing too many people to die, but silence is also causing too many disruptions. So for those who are impacted by mental health and those who are trying to help and save others, that silence is leading to misunderstanding, it's leading to build up of problems. And so if we can take home with us, wherever you are in the spectrum, that it's okay not to be okay, this is how we actually start conversations and prevention starts with a conversation. So I want to give a gigantic hand to all of the amazing people who past and currently and actively wake up every day to help support a stable and safe society for us. Please give them all a big hand, all of you, our guests. And in closing, I want to thank the producers of Conversation Cafe Anthologies of Hope Risk Rick Ozowski, what's up, Rick? I want to thank I want to thank our wonderful live event host, Sip of Hope Coffee Bar. Thank you, Sip of Hope. And of course, this program would not be possible without the generous support of our partners in prevention, Banyan Treatment Centers, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. My name is Carl Evans, and this has been Conversations Cafe. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so very much for joining us this week. We hope you had as good a time listening as we had recording the interview. Don't forget to check out anthologiesofhope.com backslash playlist for all the awesome songs that will get added each week. You can find us on social media at Anthologies of Hope on Facebook and Instagram and Anthologies Pod on Twitter. It would be great if you could subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google and leave us a review. As always, remember, everyone has a story and it's about time we start listening.